0: Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, crazy diamonds. Welcome back to an episode of my podcast. It's called Cycling in Alignment. This is 125 episodes into the podcast co-universe, podcast universe, podcosmos in my world. And today I want to talk about how to restore health, which is kind of a nicer way to say what to do when you get really sick. And as it turns out today, I'm a bit sick, which is why I thought I would do this episode. I've had a few clients recently have some challenges with their health. I'm talking about things like flus and colds, COVID, or maybe illness of an undiagnosed variety or origin. Idiopathic, as they say in the medical world. So I'm going to give you some basic concepts about how to think about being sick. These are really important. And then we'll talk about exposure factors, that is, things that can get you sick. We'll also talk about you getting sick as a result of exposure, as a result of your own immune system being compromised. And you probably know this by now, I'm not an immunologist, so I'll try to be careful and not speak out of my lane here, but I think I have some things that might be worth saying. And then... We'll talk about some practical application. What do you do? Should you ride? Should you not ride? Do you eat or do you not eat? What, how do we get better? Those kinds of things. And then at the end of the podcast, I have two secret weapons to unleash upon illness, which will napalm any viral or bacterial infection into a mere modicum of what it was when it attacked your beautiful body. <clears throat> Pardon me in advance because I will probably have to clear my throat a few times. Today my symptoms are a little, mm, they're pretty vague, and they're not outlandishly high in volume. Or and they're not making my life really difficult, but it was enough for me to stay home today and not go to the office and or trips about the town. Uh, no use prevaricating about bushes when you're a bit ill. I don't want to get anyone else sick, nor do I want to compromise my own immune system further by doing too many things. So it's been a quiet day at the house, but I have been working on this podcast. So let's get into it. I think the first thing to really consider when you're thinking about restoring your health, when you've become sick, especially as an athlete, the the most useful thing to simply remind yourself of is to have perspective, right? This is probably going to mean a couple of days down. By down, I mean maybe in bed, maybe not training, or maybe a couple of days of light training, depending on what you have and how intense the symptoms are. And it's important to not get too bummed out. So I think a lot of athletes will pretty immediately become concerned with the idea. Or the belief that they're going to lose all the gains they've made in their training. Or they're going to become horrendously unfit and be dropped in their next race. And for sure, there are plenty of anecdotes of this type of thing happening. But the thing about fitness is, it's actually not as fleeting as people think, might think. Uh, We can read all these articles, these doom-scrolling articles about how you spend this many weeks building up fitness and you get this much CTL and then it plummets instantly. And then you suck in two weeks you lose three months of fitness and i'm here to tell you that is incorrect you don't lose months of fitness in days that's not how the body works now what i will say is the primary confounding variable in this type of outcome or colloquialism not colloquialism anecdote i don't like that word either anecdote implies something that's untrustworthy i'm not sure what the word i'm looking for at the moment is but I don't like this type of N of one. We'll say it that way. Because when you have, for example, three months of solid training under your belt, and then you get sick for eight days and you're off the bike, and then it takes you another three days to get going. So 11 days after this illness, the onset of this illness, you go out and you go hard. And of course, what do we do go straight to some 30 minute threshold or stomp up a climb or do intervals. And it is entirely possible. And in my experience, quite likely that simply what's happening is you have a fair amount of innate fitness. It's just not being expressed at that moment, right? There's a difference between expression of fitness in any given moment and owning or cultivating fitness, which has long-term presence. So understand that those are not the two same things. And cycling in particular is a sport of momentum in the sense that when the fitter you get, the more you have to sharpen the blade going into a race. That is when you maintain or when you accumulate a lot of fitness through a lot of training, through months of training, or maybe even years, then it becomes more critical that you run into the event with a little work in your legs. That is just enough work to get things loosened up, but not so much that you're carrying fatigue. This is the art of the taper, effectively. And there are mini tapers that happen all the time. And back in the day, when I used to race 80 or 90 times in a season, there were lots of mini tapers that happened. You went out two days before race, you almost always rode easy. And then the day before a race, typically you would do a little kitchen sink workout that was just enough of everything to get you open and ready for the next day. So by that, I mean a couple sprints, maybe a tempo of 10 minutes and maybe a short effort of two minutes or maybe five minutes. It depended on who you were and what you were shooting for and kind of what efforts made you feel good versus which ones kind of might, we'll say, not give you the best psychological run-in for an event, right? So This happens all the time. And even with these tune-ups, it may take a week or two of regular training before your fitness can fully express itself. You know, COVID is a great example of a virus that likes to linger and hang out, and it really attacks the mitochondria or taxes them, I should say. I mean, again, I'm not a virologist, so I don't know exactly how the mechanism of COVID works. We've all read about cytokine storms and those types of things, but I can tell you one thing for sure. Mitochondria really get hit hard when you get COVID and it takes a while for them to bounce back sometimes. This is the unpredictability of illness. And this is why we have to proceed with caution when we're coming back from illness, because you don't know really how a virus is going to hit you until you try to push it too soon. And I've done that a few times and the cost can be quite large. I don't want to nocebo anybody, but Definitely makes sense, in my experience, to be cautious when you're coming back from illness. This is Mm. sound advice. So that I'm not giving you, I'm passing it on from people who have given it to me. So the first thing to consider in this equation, when you wake up one day and you go, oh, crap, I think I'm sick. You've got a fever or achy achy muscles or achy joints not soreness from going hard not soreness from glycogen depletion but you're properly sick you're maybe a little fluish that's the most common symptom for me that's how i feel right now a little bit fluish i don't have a temperature at the moment but i feel like i'm running warm but i'm always wanting more clothes and more fireplaces and heaters so when you hit that point the thing to do is take a moment and just be present And accept what's happened and surrender to the fact that you are sick. When we get angry or frustrated, this is really, uh, at the simplest level, it is the tenet of Buddhism, which says, or a tenet, that all suffering, the root of all suffering, is simply the gap between reality and expectation. This This is quite useful, I think. So the expectation is that you were gonna get up and go for your three hour ride and do your efforts or whatever you had planned for that day. But the reality is your body is battling an infection or your or your immune system is ramped up, which isn't necessarily the same thing as battling an infection for the record. But, or an infection, a vi- it could be a viral infection or bacterial infection or some other type of infection or some other type of stress. So, okay, I'm doing my best to keep my thoughts combobulated here because my brain powers probably aren't full. I'm not, I'm not running with a full deck today quite. Bear with me. So we have to surrender first of all and accept that we are sick. If you're angry and stressed out, then of course you're gonna ramp up your cortisol levels and kind of be in sympathetic mode And if you're stressed out about this belief that you're going to miss all your fitness it's going to go flying off into the cosmos well that's going to be pretty miserable and in my years on this planet and my three and a half decades in the sport i've learned that when i'm sick it's really for me it's my body hitting the brakes for me and that message that action comes with a message so Most of the time, sickness is really our body tapping us out. We have done too much, probably too much yong, probably too much doing, too many workouts, too much work, too much email, too much whatever, picking the kids up from soccer. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't pick up your kids from soccer. Um, They probably need to come home with you. But when we do too much, eventually things break down. This is natural law. When we swing out of balance, we have consequences. So illness, most of the time, is that consequence. It's your body putting the brakes on and making you rest. It literally ramps up your immune system to the point where you feel like crap and you want to sleep all the time or can't really move. So what I'm suggesting is we surrender to that experience and we maybe reflect on how we got there. What did we do to get ourselves in this hole? That's one side of the sickness equation. The other is exposure factors. And there is of course, a relationship between exposure and becoming ill. So to give a thought experiment to this, imagine that you were perfectly healthy and your immune system was running at some outstanding percentage, perhaps 96% of peak efficiency and This is a ridiculous thought experiment, by the way. I tend to come up with these. You walk up to a person, a friend of yours, who has strep throat, and you lick their tongue repeatedly and stick your tongue in their mouth. You make out with them. Now, I don't recommend this practice. But if you did that, the chances of you getting strep would be quite high. It's contagious, right? So exposure has a relationship to our illness. Even if your immune system is quite strong, a lot of exposure might still result in you becoming ill. However, the stronger our immune system is, the better we are at fending off said foreign invaders and the less exposure we have, the better we are at fending off foreign invaders. That's all based on germ theory. Now I'm not going to say the word vaccine here, but I will say that Louis Pasteur the guy who came up with germ theory later renounced it. Oh, I probably just opened a can of worms and said it was all about the terrain. So this is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about terrain versus exposure. And my understanding of Louis Pasteur's life and history is that he eventually came to the conclusion that terrain was more important than exposure. So what does he mean? He means that the health of your body is more important than you killing viruses or killing bacteria with soaps and antibiotics and mm, OCD behavior and this type of thinking. So I'll I'll leave that one where it is, because it's a whole giant hornet's nest, no doubt. So but independent of that, I think it's it's really important to consider this weight of, independent of any conversations about Louis. it's important to consider the weight of the exposure versus the strength of the immune system. And how do we prevent ourselves from getting sick? Well, what can you control? You can control exposure, right? So exposure factors would include travel, uh, other people or who carry viruses and bacteria, uh, and the amount of people you're exposed to with all those viruses and bacteria are You know, it's proportional to the exposure you get. Then a separate category, but related, is other people who are sick, who you're exposed to. This could be your coworkers, your own kids, other people's kids, as common examples, right? I mean, we all know that kids are basically petri dishes, right? They're out running around playing in the dirt and, I don't know, probably eating each other's hair and doing all kinds of other cool stuff and licking frogs and who knows what else. So they're they're little life experience factories that are uh, honing their immune system and they do this through all the crazy kid stuff that they do. I used to do that stuff when I was a kid too. I do not like other children's hair at this time. So we can also be exposed from sources of challenge in your environment, right? So this is thinking about things like mold. So less bacterial or viral, but mold exposure can of course make you sick. In fact, it can make you ill repeatedly. And bacteria in your own home can make you ill repeatedly. If you have a pretty unclean kitchen and you're cooking raw chicken and grabbing your refrigerator handle without washing your hands properly, then you might be getting yourself sick from time to time, right? So this is an area where exposure does play a role. And of course, we figured out a long time ago that the rate of infection and in surgery went down when everything was as clean as possible. Also, we have to consider pets. Love our pets. We have two cats. We used to have one dog and then before that we had two dogs. Uh, I think sometime, sometime in our life we'd like to own some other animals. We'll see if that happens. But pets animals they run around outside they roll in all kinds of dead carcasses and who knows what else and they bring it into your home right Uh, cats clean themselves they don't take showers they literally lick their entire bodies so when you live with pets you're incurring some risk of exposure to different substances especially if you have outdoor pets and there's probably a point where that challenges your immune system in a healthy way we might say a hormetic dose Uh, and then there's a point where it tips the balance because of course all physiological load summates right but before we move past exposure factors i want to point out one really important nuance for cyclists this is critical and i'm pretty convinced that more cyclists are subject to this than we might think uh, you have to keep your equipment clean. You've heard my podcast probably with Don Powell about how he washes his shorts on hot. And in case you didn't hear it, he's a he makes shorts. He's my friend who runs Panache Cyclewear. He makes shorts for a living, and he washes his shorts on hot. Why? Well, think about it. You're sweating profusely in that area. You're covered with a chamois. You've got lots of sweat glands. You've also got Uh, not to be indelicate, but your butthole's down there and you're sweating. And so on a hot day, we get a lot of sweat that pools there. We don't have an evaporative cooling effect that works real well when you're sitting on a chamois um, on a saddle, right? Like there are a lot of areas of your jersey that will stay dry in all but the most extreme heat conditions, like your shoulders, for example, the front of your shoulders, because you have so much evaporative cooling that even if you're sweating like crazy, normally it doesn't really have a chance to collect there. The exception being if you're in a really, really humid environment and the water vapor just can't go anywhere. But I live in Colorado. So, you know, here especially, like we don't, even a person who sweats a lot doesn't get really sweaty because it just goes away so fast. So these are things to think about. And the other place I think that mold can accumulate is in your water bottles. And... You've probably, maybe you've seen my video on Kigo bottles. I think these are brilliant, not only because they're moldable titanium and they don't make your water taste like plastic, but also because the valves are the simplest, most easy to clean valves on the market that I've found by a significant margin. And I don't think I really talked about that in my video I did about them, but these bottles are amazing. There are a few caveats to them. You can go check out the video if you want. It's on my YouTube channel. But the point I'm getting at is we have to clean the bite valves of our bottles regularly. We are literally, we are literally making the perfect conditions for mold to grow. We're putting sugary water in there we're sipping it all day through a complex system of canals and channels and plasticky and silicone and other bits. And then we let it sit there and we come in from a ride and the last thing we want to do is clean a water bottle. So we sit on the couch or eat a turkey sandwich or whatever we're doing. Hopefully you're not drinking a protein shake with a bunch of soy isolate in it because you know how I feel about processed foods. So have some real food for recovery. What kind of protein shake should you have? Um, A sandwich. So that's my two cents. Not a popular opinion perhaps, but... We have to clean out these these valves really well. You have to scrub them. You can't just wash the soap through them. You have to scrub them. And when we don't do this, and I'm going to beat up on Camelback for a minute, their valves work really well, and they are the worst to clean, and they are the best at trapping mold. Uh, it'll take you easy three or four weeks in the summer uh, to gain, to start growing, cultivating some sort of Petri dish in your Camelback bottle bite valve. And when you take them apart, there's like 15 little parts that go flying down the sink and whatever. So I think they work well, but they're high maintenance to clean. The Kigo bottles are my first pick for multiple reasons, but the bite valve is one of them because I don't want to drink tiny amounts of mold every time I take a sip from my bottle. This is obviously not ideal. What I'm saying is, if you think you have mold in your home, if you think you have mold in your bottles, this needs to be a top priority. This can impact your long-term health significantly it's a huge problem for some people. And it's kinda like EMFs. Probably a good percentage of the world walks through this planet not really having too much sensitivity to EMF, and it's not a big deal. But for some subset of the population, now, how much, how, what percentage, we have no idea, but some subset of, pop, of the population that is probably more than 1% and probably less than 20, as a guess, is really sensitive to emfs and when you get on the really sensitive spectrum it can disrupt your organ health your sleep etc cetera, etc cetera. so you hear these stories all the time about how people turn off their router for the first time at night and they sleep well for the first time in seven years or whatever these, these are real stories right and you hear them over and over again the same thing can happen with mold if you have ongoing illness in your home sorry in your your world your life And there's any possibility you have mold in your house, or you know you have mold in your house, you absolutely have to deal with that. And I know that's not great news for someone who maybe knows that they have mold in their bathroom or in their walls or whatever, because it's expensive and not an easy problem to solve. But this has to be a priority because the chances of it compromising your health are extremely high in my understanding. So look for mold. That's, that's my takeaway there. I'll just mention briefly, again, with a disclaimer that I'm not a virologist, that we can have bacterial or viral infections in when we're thinking about things like whatever. You might call it a common cold, or you might call it a flu. But the reality is these infections can take different forms. And one thing I think that is pretty interesting that not a lot of people perhaps know is that antibiotics in the U.S. are commonly prescribed for many illnesses, and antibiotics do nothing against a virus. Nothing. Now, if you want to get even weirder about it, there are even some people who believe that a virus is technically not alive, so you can't actually kill it. That's a far more advanced discussion. And beyond my expertise, although i think it's interesting. But antibiotics literally means, uh, biotic means life. Anti means against. So antibiotics means kills life. So understand first that when you take antibiotics, you are killing life. And this is a case of some poison will be better for the host than if you let the infection run rampant. And there are definitely cases where that is. So, and if you have a, a a really bad infection somewhere in your body, antibiotics can save your life. However, the flip side, of course, is the over-prescription of antibiotics. And in particular, for people who have a viral, we'll say, infection or explosion, and they take antibiotics. This makes no sense. Again, I'm not a doctor, not a virologist, but this makes no sense whatsoever. Now, to add to the subplot, sometimes bacterial and viral infections can be coupled. That is, you get one and then another one flares up. So generally speaking, if you have stuff coming out of your lungs, you're coughing things out of your lungs, phlegm and mucus, and it has lots of different colors, it's dark, this is disgusting, so bear with me, we're talking brown, red, black, that kind of stuff, there's a good chance you've got something bacterial going on. If that's not happening, there's a reasonable chance it's viral. But that's only one of many ways to dig into this. So. If you have to know, go find a doctor. A quick story to underline this point. During my six-day adventures, at one point I crashed. Actually, I think it was at a World Cup in Denmark, if I remember correctly, in Copenhagen. And I went to see the med after the race. I was fine. Uh, it was just a minor tumble. And I went to see the medic after the race and had the typical, you know, a few splinters in my ass and some rash on my leg and on my hip and probably my arm. I don't remember exactly. It, it really wasn't a bad crash, but it was on a wooden track, hence the splinters. So they pick the splinters out with tweezers and then they clean you with a bunch of crazy soaps. And then that guy started to put a bandage over me and I asked him, well, are we going to put some sort of something on there? And he said, like what? And I said, well, like an antibiotic cream. And he said, no, we don't do that here in Denmark. That contributes to bacterial resistance of antibiotic Uh, yeah, antibiotic resistance of bacteria. And you don't need this for the scrapes you have. Now, to be clear, I wasn't, you know, my liver wasn't hanging out of the side of my torso or anything. It was just some very superficial wounds that sucked, but weren't a big deal in in the big picture of things, just skin. But he informed me that they almost never use these creams for these types of crashes unless you've got an actual puncture wound. And he offered antibiotic resistance to bacteria or of bacteria as the primary reason and I thought that was quite interesting because in almost every other country in the world that I've crashed in which is quite a few uh they're quick to whip out the neosporin here in the US too so anyway crazy Danish So now we can talk about the strength of the immune system right so we talked about exposure factors travel other people who are sick right uh your pets uh, mold in your home. These are these are common exposure factors. And the more you're exposed to those factors, the more likely it is you'll get sick because all stress summates. So one way to reduce your exposure is to avoid those things or to clean those things up in your life, right? But the other is to, and of course you can't always avoid those things. You're not going to give away your kids because they keep bringing home illness. The other is to ramp up the strength of your immune system or be as healthy as possible, Right? A vital, robust life force will make you resistant to foreign invaders. It will make you hard to kill. That's what we want. We want to be durable and hard to kill. I don't want to live longer. I want to live healthier. I prefer to focus on health span, not lifespan. Important difference. So strength of the immune system can be compromised by food allergies or sensitivities. Which you may or may not be aware of keep in mind some people blissfully bumble along in life thinking that they have no food sensitivities but they've been drinking milk nearly every day of their entire life so take a moment with me and just think is there a single food that you've had almost every day of your life milk might be one wheat might be one for some people uh, if you grew up in Asia or live in Asia, white rice might be one, right? I'm talking foods that you've eaten since you were a child, as long as you can remember, and you'd have to really struggle to think of days when you didn't eat it. Then we have to ask ourselves this question Well, if you've eaten it almost day, every day of your life, how would you know if you have a sensitivity? Because your body will, at first, be quite challenged by this, but over time, the volume gets turned down and the physiological stress is elevated. And the system just does what it can to deal with it. And it accepts this stress in your system, right? This is how the nervous system handles ongoing low-level stressors. It just deals with them. It's kind of like getting on a bike that you love from the shop and getting on the saddle and going, oh, this saddle's not that comfortable. But man, it's carbon and it looks so cool. So I'm just gonna ride it for a while. And then a couple weeks later, you're like, ah, it kind of hurts, but it's not that bad. And then a month later, you're like, yeah, whatever. I don't know, my junk only goes numb on four-hour rides, right? And before you know it, you've ridden it for three years. And then one day your unit doesn't work or your lady bits are torn to shreds or whatever. Forgive me. But this is how a human experience works. We, we tolerate low levels of load. This is also how you can have a raging tooth infection and really have actually quite a few dental problems for a long time. And then all of a sudden it comes to a head, Right. What happened in the year and a half before that? It, your tooth didn't just get infected in one night. It happened over months or years, probably. So I invite you to ask that question of yourself. What food do I eat regularly that I've had nearly every day of my life? Coffee could be one of these two. If you start drinking coffee when you're whatever, 16, 18, 20, something like that, which is about when I did. I think I probably got on the coffee train around the age of 21, you know, started out with the uh, the like latte that was basically loaded up with sugar it was pretty much coffee ice cream in a cup and then I eventually graduated to to adult coffee and now I have my my cortado a day basically only usually it's not with milk because milk does challenge me anyway so cinnamon and goat butter in case you're wondering I We'll invite you to ask that question of yourself. And then if you do find there is a food you've eaten almost every day of your life, maybe you want to let that go for a while and then come back to it and see what happens. Now, maybe it's perfectly fine. And if that's okay, then what happened? You didn't eat that food for three weeks of your life. Not the end of the world. You can eat other food. But you might find that it actually really challenges you and your physiological load goes down as a result of eliminating that food from your diet it's possible. Uh, Other things that can compromise the strength of the immune system, the system health of your lymphatics or your lymph glands. So when we're thinking about lymph, we're thinking of it as a, it's like a trash system, right? But lymph nodes are, they're little receptacles all over your body. So we don't have a giant 60-gallon trash bin in our, in our body. We have lots of little ones, at least in the lymph system. We have lots of little trash cans all over the house, and they need to be cleaned out constantly. But there's nothing they do on their own to clean. You have to do things to clean them. And the things you do are things like breathing or bouncing. Even walking can do it. Jogging can do it. Anything that's sort of oscillating in nature, Cycling won't really do it. It'll help because you're breathing hard. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I've never seen science on this. I, I doubt there is any, to be honest. But cycling wouldn't be the best activity to clean your lymph, but it's probably not the worst either. Uh, someone who's riding, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a week probably has better lymph health than someone who is sedentary for sure. The more you sit in one place, the more your lymph collects. This is why... One reason why when you get off a plane, a long flight, a transcontinental flight, you end up with kinkles, right? Which can be averted somewhat by wearing wool compression socks. My recommendation for international travel every time. 97% of the time it works every time. So <clears throat> when we're talking about our lymph system, we have to actively keep it, we'll say tidy. You got to sweep your doorstep and Breath work is a great way to do that. Uh, Farm for Red sun is a great way to do that. Uh, alternating heat and cold, will do that. Walking, we'll do it, daily walking. I walk probably half hour just about every day. I would say I have for the last couple of years at least. Uh, today will be a day I don't do that because I'm a little sick, so I will rest. But most days I'll do that. Tomorrow I'll hope to get out. And another thing that can Strengthen or weaken your immune system is your tolerance of environmental conditions, right? So how well do you tolerate heat, cold, wind, uh, dampness, dryness, right? And if I have to synopsize why I think I'm not feeling great today, it's probably a little bit of what we call a cold wind invasion in Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM as it's abbreviated. Uh, Full disclaimer, I'm not a doctor of TCM either, although I have studied it a bit and I'm familiar with some of the basic concepts. But the idea is pretty simple. Cold wind invasion will get you in the chest and the neck. And in particular, that happens when you're cycling in cold weather because, of course, your body is at a whatever degree angle. So the first thing to hit clean wind is your chest and your neck. So rule number one for Avoiding that type of outcome is to keep your neck and chest warm. Wear a, I really don't like this word, neck buff, neck gaiter. There's no good way to say it. Uh, I'm not sure why I have such an aversion to that word. Probably because I live in Boulder and we have the buffs here. And I'll just be honest, I am the least tribal person in the universe. And there's nothing like a frenzy of whipped up tribalism to get you to go to a football game. So, moving on uh, wear something to cover your neck. My first choice is natural materials. Always. I opt for wool. Wool is my friend. It is by far my favorite apparel material in almost all instances. And, but you can do what works for you, but you want to cover your neck and keep the cold air off your neck and the upper part of your chest, right where your sternum is. That's the key point from there up to the Adam's apple. And this is important from a wind flow perspective on the bike. So yesterday I did a ride of about, I don't know, 90 minutes on gravel, and I thought I dressed appropriately, but apparently the physiological stress of that ride combined with some other stuff was just enough to give me a little bit of an invasion of this cold wind, as we would say. So my symptoms are a bit of a light cough, as you've heard, um, a sensation of achiness, kind of. Feel sort of feverish. Uh, muscles are really sore, moving sore, and I'm slow moving. I'm kind of lumbering around the house, and if I sit in one place for too long, my lower back kind of aches. My legs are pretty achy. Wouldn't even think about riding my bike right now. No chance. And I'll get to why I make that comment in a moment. <coughs> so we. We can think about the strength of our immune system really as a function of total physiological load, right? The stronger you are, the more vital life force you have, the better you'll be at fending off infection or illness. This is everything. I mean, this is your total amount of sleep, how you navigate or negotiate stress, manage stress, your diet, how much crap food are you eating, whether you're eating for your metabolic type or someone else's metabolic type. Uh, whether you are dogmatically fixated on a dietary belief system that actually doesn't serve you whether that is keto carnivore veganism vegetarianism or standard American diet or pick pick your flavor the point is if you're fixated on a diet that actually doesn't serve you and you keep eating it that will lower your ability to handle stress significantly that will that will add to your physiological load and paul has a Cool concept here that he calls the four doctors. And the four doctors are Dr. Quiet, Dr. Movement, Dr. Diet, and Dr. Happiness. Now you might be thinking, this is pretty cheesy. And I'll agree with you, it is. Uh, This is part of Paul's brilliance, is he comes up with these concepts that are actually quite core to health. They're, They're really profound. And he gives them these kind of campy concepts that are almost cartoonish. And the reason he does this is so you remember him, right? It's like, do not think of a pink flying elephant. Well, there you go. So Dr. Happiness is about what is happy making in your life? What are you doing that is joyful? Can you dance? Can you sing? Do you smile easily? Do you tell jokes? When did you stop listening to stories or telling stories? When did you lose the ability to look at the world and wonder? These are questions that someone might ask you when you became really ill. And what they're getting at is, where did your happiness go? So if your happiness is in balance, if you have dance parties in the kitchen with your kids, or you laugh really hard when your friend tells you a joke, or you sit down and play a, make a puzzle with your family or play a game, or you play with your cat or your dog or, or whatever, or you play some other game that is not competitive. That is, we'll say takes the role of unbound play in your life. Then you are happy making. And this is one way to reduce physiological load. Another is Dr. Diet. That's pretty obvious. We kind of talked about that. It's pretty simple. Eat for your metabolic type and for your body and you'll do well if you don't, you won't, right? This comes down to being honest because we have emotional attachments to food, right? I mean, mom made the most amazing fried chicken when I was a kid. And so now when I eat fried chicken, I feel loved and held and safe because it reminded me of my own dinner table when I was a child and we were always smiling and laughing. This is a normal human experience, but that doesn't mean that eating fried chicken now will serve you it might mean that it's actually challenging you so we have to detach that experience of love from the experience of food and that is challenging to do but it can be done and the first step is awareness Uh, dr quiet is about your yin-yang balance right it's about not doing too much that was the first point i made about getting sick we probably are doing too much when we get sick too much yang, too much doing too much output right what is yang fundamentally yang is the sunny side of the hill it is the masculine component of our personalities this applies to you being a man or a woman it's independent of your gender we all have yang capacities and yang tendencies and yang energy within us we have to that that balance of yin and yang is what makes life it's what makes life force that's the dance of life so when you're on the sunny side of a hill you're doing things probably climbing the hill if you're a bike rider and an athlete metaphorically or literally, and you are dividing, conquering, accomplishing, adding, building, these are yang qualities. Yin is the shadow side of the hill. Yin is rejuvenation. Yin is power multiplied. Yin is rest, recovery primarily yin is sleep. However, there are lots of ways we can have more yin in our lives. When was the last time you just sat down for five minutes and stared at something and did nothing else but stare at it? You could stare at a candle. You could stare at a star. You can stare at your cat. And just be present in that moment. This would be yin. Just one example. Uh, I do like to go outside at night and stare at stars for a while. It's quite powerful and a great way to prep you for sleep just be aware that if you do it on the night of the full moon or within a couple nights of that and there's no clouds it can actually you, there's a reason that werewolves are a thing in folklore uh, the full moon can be a bit deranging because it sort of messes with it it messes with our natural rhythms a little bit it sort of reflects the Sun back at us at the wrong time if you think about that from the perspective of a metaphor. There's also, Paul talks quite a bit about some studies that have shown that flowers and plants are really stressed out on the full moon. I cannot remember the name of the book he's referring to when he talks about this. I have not read it, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, if you can't find that in your own spelunking and you really want to, message me and I'll dig, up, I'll dig it out of my notes and find it for you. So this would be yin. Uh, when we look at the archetypes of masculine and feminine, men are young and men are fundamentally, they divide power. They divide things and power, right? When you go out and do things, you're dividing your power. You're accomplishing something and it comes at a price. Then you go home and you sleep and you regenerate your battery, right? That is yin. Women are archetypally yin. Women are power multipliers. Think about it. When a woman grows a child that she is literally multiplying herself into another person well with the help of a man normally so although he just gives a little tiny contribution and she gets to do all the hard work thank you women so this is this is the fundamental nature of men and women now we each have <clears throat> of course some of both qualities within us and we must And if they get too out of balance, then we crash. That is, if a woman becomes too yin and has no yang, then what is too yin? Yin is someone who is mushy. Their boundaries are mushy. They don't have any impetus. They don't have any drive. They don't have any will to accomplish, right? Lay on the couch all day and surf Instagram and complain about stuff. That'd be an example of anyone who's too yin, not just a woman who's too yin, but anyone who's too yin uh no boundaries that would be a great way to say it yang is the opposite it is someone who when they take extreme in their yang extreme posture and their yang livelihood or behavior they are rigid and boundaried to an exceptional degree and the end result would be of course you you start to compromise your doctor happiness that will bleed over into that because if you're rigid and boundaried you're not going to be laughing much But the real risk, the first priority or the first outcome of being too young, you're smoked all the time. You're smashed, right? Uh, The ultimate cultural icon for too much young, David Goggins. David Goggins is young cubed or to the power of 100. That's what that guy does. So... When you want to smash yourself into oblivion and grind your bones into dust from doing so much work because you are programmed to believe that that is a good thing for some reason then go knock yourself out i will not be going along for the ride nor will i pick up the pieces when you fall off the fence you have been educated this is correct uh let's say so i covered diet quiet happiness movement well dr movement is also a doctor that must remain in balance in our lives. And too much movement, too much yang, not enough recovery, you're smoked. Now, I might have gotten myself a little bit in that equation. This week I trained not that much, but all physiological stress summates. Meaning when we get sick, sometimes you could point to a single instance like, oh, my brother had COVID and he came over for dinner and then I got COVID. Okay, it seems pretty obvious that was your vector. But at other times we get sick and we're not really sure what went on. It wasn't a clear exposure pathway or instance, right? Food poisoning is like this. Sometimes you get food poisoning and you're scratching your day, your, your head for days. Sometimes you clearly know it was the whatever pasta carbonara. At other times you can't really figure it out. It's like, what meal was that? I don't know, but I got, I'm, I'm, I'm in the hurt locker today. That's sometimes the way these situations play out. However, the lower our life force and the higher our physical load, physiological load, the the more susceptible we are to those types of circumstances. Now, a little bit on heat, cold, wind, dampness, and dryness, right? These are environmental conditions that are talked about in Chinese medicine quite a bit. And people talk about a cold wind invasion, which I've mentioned, but I'll say this. Uh, Look around on your next group ride if there is such a thing that you do and notice a correlation between the age of the riders and the amount of clothing they are wearing. And then if you're so inclined, further discern the cycling age of the person, meaning how many years have they been in the sport and the amount of clothing they're wearing in a winter ride or a shoulder season ride. And there is a direct correlation between someone being in the sport longer and wearing more clothes on colder rides than the person who's a novice. And this is because people who are experienced in the sport understand that you get out on the road and conditions change. You get out of town, 30 minutes out of town and the wind kicks up. This is exactly what happened to me yesterday. And I thought I was armed and ready for that, but apparently I wasn't quite. So, There's a real balance there. I'm not saying you should mummify yourself in warm clothing all the time and only ride in Gore-Tex. The downside of doing that when you overdress, especially if you go climbing, is you get really wet and you collect a lot of sweat in the clothing and then you descend and you can get cold. So this is a real challenge. So we have to dress intelligently in layers and layers you can take off and put on and also that have a lot of ventilation and zippers so that you can unzip on climbs and not collect too much moisture. But the bottom line for me is It's really important to avoid cold wind on my chest. And what I want to explain that's important is I believe that repeated exposure can increase susceptibility to these types of infections or instances of illness. I'm 100% certain this is the case with me. My feet get cold quite a bit easier than my hands because when I was a junior, I used to wear gloves all the time, no problem. And I have good circulation and generally I'm a very warm person, but I hated wearing shoe covers when I was a kid. I don't really have a good reason for it. I hated the way they felt on my shoes. I hated the way they looked on my shoes. Sometimes they'd rub my crank arm. I wanted to have my foot really close to the crank arm, blah, blah, blah. So I just hated shoe covers. Also, when I grew up, shoe covers were terrible. I'm going to let you guys know. You wouldn't know this now, all you people listening to this podcast, unless you're 55 or older or 51 or older. But when I was racing as a 15-year-old, booties consisted of basically foam. They were made out of foam. Stitched together with a zipper in the back. They were like a foam sock. They were terrible. They didn't really work. They were made out of foamy, rubbery stuff. It was kind of like a scuba material, but not that advanced even. And they were god awful. And then we had rain jackets that were literally just plastic, moldable plastic, zero ventilation, none whatsoever. So you raced in this rain jacket and you just, within minutes, you'd begin to overheat. It was like riding in a sauna. So, I mean, on a day where it was 33 degrees and sleeting and you had to get to the line, it was great. But any other conditions than that, it was an absolute train wreck. So, booties sucked is what I'm saying. We don't have all these, we didn't have all these high-tech wind resistant materials and stretchy materials in the right place and all that stuff that we have now. Booties can be much more elegant and easier to put on. In any case, I'm 100% certain that my feet have suffered from not wearing shoe covers during cold rides when I was younger, and now they get cold more, more quickly. They just don't have quite as good of a circulation. Now, I'm working on reconditioning my feet, as many of you know, and spreading out my toes and making my feet wider and stronger. And I think they've gotten better in the last, I'll say, three years. The circulation has gotten better, but there's still some work to be done there. And... I am also 100% certain that my chest is subject to cold wind, and I can get a chest cold quite easily. It's happened to me multiple times where even a little screw up has led to me just getting a chest cold. And I think that's what's happened here. So something to avoid. And in particular, when you're on a shoulder season ride, and you're not quite sure how the, the weather might change on that day, I invite you to always bring a wind vest and a neck buff. That's the last time I'm going to say that a tubular neck cover so that you can uh, add that. (coughs) Pardon me. If conditions get challenging or the wind kicks up or the clouds roll in, in Colorado, this is a real thing. You know, the sun is so strong here. When the clouds roll in, it makes a huge difference, enormous difference in how cold or warm it feels. Uh, It feels like a 15 or 20 different 20 degree temperature swing. Whereas on the East coast or in other places of the country, we just, it just doesn't quite work out that way. Some parts of California can be like that. California can be wicked cold. I have frozen there. That state can really kick your ass. She is, she'll smack you around sometimes. Colorado does too. She likes to let you know who the boss is and she is definitely running the show. So what I'm saying is wear more clothes, a little bit more clothes. Be smart, dress in layers, wear a base layer, get good base layers. Preferably, I prefer wool base layers. I don't like synthetics next to my skin, except on the hottest of days, but I wear a base layer on almost every day. But I'm also at the point in my riding career journey, whatever you want to call it, voyage, where it's almost impossible for me to overheat. I'll say that again, because it might be weird. It's impossible for me to overheat. I don't get too hot. Uh, When I was a younger rider, I would wilt in the heat and thrive in the snow. I could road race in the snow and do soccer cross in the snow, no problem, out there in little Lycra leg warmers. And I have pictures of me racing a cross race on my mountain bike in the snow, wearing a jersey and arm warmers. Good to go. But I don't do that now. I wear a lot more wool and Gore-Tex. Wool on the inside, Gore-Tex on the outside. But I encourage you to dress in layers and investigate the world of undershirts. We have a lot of really good technology out there. One of my favorite brands is called Brinya, which is from Norway. They make merino mesh-based layers that have a little bit of poly in them to help move sweat, but the mesh also helps move sweat quickly. And I use these quite frequently. Uh, they're great. I'll use them for cross-country skiing, riding in the winter, etc. Lots of good merino products out there. We wanna use something that has some sort of texture or mesh in it when you're using wool because Wool doesn't breathe quite as well as poly, but it doesn't stink as much, and it's a natural fiber, so you just feel better. It's like saying mojo dojo casa house. Sorry, you guys are just gonna have to deal with my Barbie jokes in the short term. It's just the way it is. I apologize. Okay, let's get into some practical stuff. Keeping in mind that really your nervous system interprets your environment. It interprets your physiological load and it responds to load. That reminds us that sometimes when you're sick, it's really your nervous system pumping the brakes because you did too much. As my wife says, overdo and overget. Love that expression. It's just beautifully simple. So, first thing we can discuss is the simple one to eat or not to eat. I have a lot of clients who ask me, should I should I eat when I'm sick? There's a lot of discussion around this. I think ultimately it comes down to your intuition. When you're sick, some people do better by just sleeping. And it depends on what kind of illness we're talking about, right? If you're thrown up or on the toilet all day, then you're probably not eating. When you do eat, you should eat very gentle foods. I would offer that white rice and perhaps bananas are a good way to start when you're just getting food back in your system. You want things that are very easy to digest, very bland, not spicy, not fatty. So if you are having diarrhea or you're vomiting, that's the way to go when you're ready for it. Also white rice tends to kinda slow the train down in my experience. So that can be a thing that works. But if you've got something like what I have today, which is a bit of flu-like symptoms, or you've got COVID, or you've got a really bad head cold, or maybe you've got some sort of bronchitis or something. You really have to use your judgment and decide if you're gonna eat or sleep. And of course you can do some of both. It doesn't have to be an extreme, but these, it's not a, I don't wanna give you a false dichotomy, but sometimes I think people are rejuvenated more by just sleeping and resting and other people are rejuvenated by eating. I am definitely on the eating side of things. When I'm sick, I'm actually eating quite a bit Uh, and I'm definitely adhering to my primal pattern eating type, which is, I'm a fast oxidizer protein type, which means basically I do really well on heavy meats and fatty cuts of meat, uh, heavier, healthier oils, um, fattier foods, healthy, fatty foods, like avocados, for example, it's not a license for me to eat French fries. And I feel like crap when I eat fried food. So I avoid that. I'm talking about, yeah, things like avocados, uh, raw goat cheese, Uh, Full fat, goat yogurt, sheep yogurt, kefirs. I avoid cow dairy in general. These things work well for me. And if my blood sugar gets too low when I'm sick, I just, the bottom falls out and I really hit rock bottom. And then I have to sleep. So if I hit that point, I went too far. I didn't eat enough. That's my own experience. I would suggest that you have to really try it every time you get sick. Every time you get sick is of course a little different. But you might find that your energy levels really get better if you eat. And if that's the case, then it's really important for you to eat certain types of foods. Uh, Recommendations I can offer are, this is the worst time to eat sugar. Sorry. I know when we're sick, we're usually feeling sorry for ourselves and we want comfort food. And that might be sugar. Cookies or pies or whatever. But it's the worst time to eat sugar. Your system's already challenged. And sugar... I did a bit of research on this and the old search engines to look for some evidence that sugar challenges the immune system. And hey, guess what? It was shocking. I found opinions on both sides. There are people who say that sugar doesn't challenge the immune system. And then there are lots that say that do. And they're all double blind, published, reviewed, peer-reviewed studies. <gasps> what do we do? Well, we consult our own internal sugar o and we use common sense. And we understand that if you can't find it in a forest, a farm, or on an ocean in an ocean or a stream, you probably shouldn't eat it, especially when you're sick. Your body is already challenged. Don't add more challenge to the pile. That's my suggestion. Now, I'm not saying be a monk and don't eat a gram of sugar while you're sick, but it's definitely not a good time to open up a gallon or a pint of ice cream and demolish the whole thing. That's probably going to not pay off in the best way it's also not a great time for coffee coffee is something that ramps up your system and gives you the capacity for linear thought give your system a break coffee also acceler it puts the foot on the accelerator and it gets helps you get shit done and that's why we like it but this is not a time to get stuff done this is probably a time when you've done too much so do less and try some tea Green tea is okay. Try some tea. Get organic tea. Don't buy crappy tea. Do not drink Lipton. Give your system a break. Foods that are good while you're sick in general, this entire list is subject to what works for you, right? Obviously, if you don't like these foods or if you're allergic to them or have a sensitivity or you just don't really enjoy the experience, then steer away from them. But foods that work really well for me while I'm sick and I think work for a lot of people when they're sick, lots of garlic, lots of ginger, Uh, lemon ginger tea with honey is great, especially if your throat's a little raspy or a little sore, a little prickly. Uh, Adding turmeric to your food, bone broth, soups with lots of sea salt. Uh, Curries can be really good as tolerated, right? If you have weak stomach chi, meaning you feel like when you're eating food, it's just not it's sort of sitting there like a lump and it's not really going anywhere and your digestion isn't great. It's sort of slow and sluggish. You might need a little fire in there. And that's where something like a curry could work well, potentially. Again, that's worked for me in the past at the right moment, but you have to use your, you have to use your judgment and your intuition. And you know, you also have to accept that you go make the curry or buy the curry or whatever. And then you try it and you eat one bite you go, Nope. I can tell right away that is not good. That is a possible outcome. So just be willing to adjust your strategy based on what you're experiencing. And this gets into your my writing advice later, which is really important. This is also a really good time when you're sick to have pro and prebiotic foods. Your system is weak. Give it some support. So kimchi, miso, raw dairy as tolerated. For me, that's goat and sheep only. You might do well with cow, raw cow dairy. Uh, Sugar-free full fat yogurts and kefirs. And that does not mean sweetened with artificial sweeteners, of course. It means sugar-free because when you have yogurt and then they put a bunch of sugar in it, it's sort of two steps forward, two steps back, because you're feeding the bacteria you just consumed the wrong thing. Right? See how that's a it's like I don't know what the analogy is. It's like delivering you a, a it's like delivering you a package you've been waiting for and then lighting it on fire on your doorstep. So those are, those are some suggestions, right? Uh, eat according to your metabolic type. For me, again, that's, I'm a fast oxidizer. So I eat heavy meats. I'm going to go have some, uh, some soup that I made today. We did uh, lamb, lamb soup with vegetables and a lot of garlic. I'm going to add some ginger to it and some green onions. That's right after I'm finished with this conversation. Technically I'm playing the guitar at you. Come on in. And If you're on the other side of the metabolic typing spectrum, then you might do better with light fish or rice or lighter foods, maybe oatmeal, something of this nature with some, (coughs) a little bit of fruit, perhaps Uh, assuming it's in season in the winter, not so much, or don't eat and just sleep. Remember that sleep is really the priority here. When you're sick, Life becomes minimal. Again, to at the risk of repeating myself, the reason you're probably sick is because you had too much load in your life, too much physiological load in your life, most likely. Or you had enough physiological load to when you got exposed to some sort of vector that your system couldn't fight it off, which still tells us that you had too much physiological load. So take being sick as an opportunity to regenerate. That's what your body's trying to get you to do. I mean, if you lived out on the prairie somewhere or in some cave somewhere and you got sick, you wouldn't run around and go do stuff all day. You'd curl up in a ball and ask your tribe to take care of you, right? That's what you need to do. So get extra sleep, take naps, sleep in, no alarm, do the best you can, move things around. I know you probably feel like you have to be at work or you have to be on this meeting on Zoom or whatever, and maybe you do, but People understand. I mean, remember what we just all went through the last four years. Like, if you tell someone you're really sick, they usually will be quite accommodating for that and just get some rest. Most of the time, the world will not stop rotating if you miss a meeting on Zoom. So, try to keep it in perspective. Also, the same is true for a bike ride. So, the last section on this is recommendations on riding. People ask all the time what do I do? What? how do I handle this? As, as a person who wants to not lose fitness, okay, I'm sick. I realize this, this sucks. I went through the five stages of grief or whatever it is. I've, I went through anger and denial and all those. And then I realized, all right, I'm sick. So I'm just going to have to chill out for a couple of days and do the best I can with this. But my symptoms are kind of this and that. How do I figure out A, should I ride? B, when do I ride? And here I can offer some guidance on that. With the caveat that you ultimately have to consult your own internal experience. Remember my philosophy that no matter how much knowledge, wisdom, and understanding I've accumulated in my 51 years in this world, even if I multiply that times a million, I can never have the experience or be more expert in the experience of you being you than you are. That is your authentic domain. That is your absolute domain of expertise. No one can take that from you. You know what it's like to be you. So and when you know something's really wrong, balls to bones, don't do it. When you know it's right and you're lighting up like a Christmas tree, go get it. There's infinite flavors in between those two points of wrong balls to bones and lit up like a Christmas tree, yes. The experience part comes in teasing those out. And they are infinitely useful and will guide every decision you make in your life. Even something as trivial as what color t-shirt do I put on today? Potentially, if that's your practice. So, here's my suggestion. At any given moment, rate your health. 1 to 100. Pretty simple. Just ask the question, where am I on this scale of 1 to 100? 100 being absolutely perfect, robust health, and outstanding, shining, laughing, giggling, energetic life force. One being near death. Where are you? At this moment right now, I'm a 54. Just when I I pose that question, it's as simple as what is the first number that comes to my mind? This might seem really random to you, but when you practice this type of intuitive, internal examination, After a while it becomes really easy. Uh, It's not that dissimilar to the game of how many Watts am I making? You should all be doing this by the way. Occasionally you should be riding along and think how many Watts am I making? And then look down and see how close you are. 242, 194, 761. So that's a really powerful game. It helps you Hmm. disconnect yourself from the nipple of the power meter. So ask yourself what your health is, rate your health on a one to a hundred. And remember that if you're a 38 today and you go for a ride, you're probably gonna be a 12 tomorrow. Here's my general guidelines. Rate your health, rate your energy zero to hundred or one to hundred. If you're between zero and 33, do not ride. Just go for maybe an easy walk with your mouth closed. That is breathing through your nose. If you can't breathe through your nose, turn around because you're too clogged up or it's too stressful to your system. Walking in the cold is okay. Dress really warm, protect your neck and your head, overdress, do not go out if it's windy. If it's windy, stay in the house. We don't practice Qigong in the wind either. It will really deplete your energy. So walking in the cold can be okay. Walking in the heat can be okay. Again, you have to use your judgment. If you're really averse to the heat and it's smoking hot out and you're sick, then stay inside, especially if the instance of illness was brought about in hot conditions. If you're between a 33 and a 66, we'll say, that's the yellow zone, proceed with caution, right? So you can go for a ride, but here are some parameters. Only consider a ride if your symptoms are above the neck, meaning something like a runny nose and a headache. Or sneezing right do not ride if you have a fever if you're throwing up you have diarrhea or you have other symptoms below the neck including painful or swollen lymph nodes in the armpit neck or groin a recent onset cough especially a heavy cough now there's a caveat there if it's a lingering cough and you've been to the doctor etc then there's a point when you have to make a choice to start riding even with a cough but that's sort of the the lingering cough of a couple weeks, right? If you have body aches, really big body aches or sore joints, don't ride. This is a virus attacking your connective tissue and the chances of things going well are slim. We have to look at riding as basically, it's a risk world calculation based on the information you have. And the choice in this scenario is 100% dictated by feeling. You have to determine whether you're gonna ride based on your sensations of health or not health. And you have to make this decision not from a place of fear. I'll get to that in a second. But let me go from 66 plus, then you can go riding with the same parameters as listed here. So the idea is if you're 33 to 66 or 66 to 100, you may choose to ride, however, only consider a ride if symptoms are above the neck. Do not ride if you have a fever, throwing up, diarrhea, have symptoms below the neck. We always ride when we're sick, even if you're a 98, 90 minutes in duration or less. And this is in respect of the ultradian rhythm. When you have any symptoms at all, or you call yourself actually sick, keep it to 90 minutes. Don't go out for a three-hour ride. Don't go out for a four-hour ride. Why? You're going to for sure disrupt your hormones. And that's going to compromise your system and add physiological stress in a way that your body isn't ready to handle right now. So let's say you were sick for four days. Day one was a 12, day two was a 44, day three was a 66, and day four was a 91. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm better. You don't jump on the bike and go for four hours. You go for 90 minutes. Why? Because you're still technically sick. You're still symptomatic. So I'll define being sick as, do you have symptoms? Pretty simple. If you're completely symptom-free, you wake up and you feel like normal. You're like, I'm normal. Then you're not sick anymore. Then you can begin to gradually add training load. Don't go out and try to make up for the five days you just missed. This is a terrible idea. All you're gonna do is injure your body. You're gonna apply too much stress too quickly and it's gonna catch up to you. There is no making up for lost workouts. That's not how this works. What we had was a timeout in the corner. And then when you're done with your timeout, you get to come back to the playground and play some more. That's how this works. Also, parameters for riding continued. Nasal breathing only. It warms the air before it comes into the lungs and it also governs intensity. Now, if you've never tried to ride with nasal breathing only, this could be quite challenging. Just try it for a few minutes. Just try keeping your mouth closed and focus on it and notice if you aren't maybe perhaps so good at directing attention that you might a minute later have your mouth open again because that's how we normally ride. But I recommend on our at least our first ride back from illness, we ride with nasal breathing. Reduce intensity to zone one or zone two at maximum in the Team EF coaching ecosystem. That would be recovery or aerobic endurance. And then the final point, I'll make about riding, if you decide to ride when you are sick, use the trending trajectory method to decide how long to ride. That is, check out the trend of how you're feeling. So that means start. Let's, let's pretend that you're starting at a 60 out of 100 as your own internal health rating. And after 20 minutes, you feel like a 40. You turn around immediately and you ride really slow home and then you go get in a hot shower and then take a nap. If you start at a 60 and you hold even, you feel about the same, then proceed with caution, ride in primarily zone one up to 90 minutes and just chill out. But if that trajectory changes, stay close to the house. Don't go out for 45 minutes and then turn around because then you get an hour in and then the last 30 minutes you feel like absolute death, you're gonna wish you were closer to the house and you're digging yourself into a deeper hole, potentially. So we really wanna respect the way the body feels. And if you start out at a 60 and then you trend better, you're feeling better and better, then still limit yourself to 90 minutes maximum. And you may add some aerobic endurance or zone two time at your discretion. But don't get carried away and decide to do intervals or get all reflective about how much training you've lost and try to make up for it with a threshold interval on the way home. This is a terrible idea, right? We need to smooth the ends of training abrupt changes in load are not good for the human body that's just a fact it is natural law also what's the opposite of that too much of the same thing too much high load for an ongoing period of time especially the same type of load not good for the human body so the pendulum has to swing back and forth this is yin and yang You might have an idea of riding, but in reality, this is based on a selective historical bias about feeling good on your bike rides, right? So you're sick, you're laying on the couch, you're feeling sorry for yourself, and you remember a ride you did last summer where you felt so amazing at the top of this climb. You had all the endorphins and all the happy chemicals, right? All the dopamine. And that's probably especially attractive when you're sick because you're sick. So your dopamine and endorphin levels are probably super low, right? or non-existent but it's very unlikely you're going to get this rush if you go out and ride when you're sick the probability is you're going to prolong your illness or feel worse and I have been on the receiving end of this equation probably in around 1998 I got quite sick in the spring at one point it was a pretty gnarly viral infection I got back on the bike and it just seemed to take forever for things to get going probably rode six or seven days, an hour, hour and a half easy every day. And finally I got impatient and I went out and just went hard and I kind of slogged my way through it. Man, I was down for another week. It just came back so hard. I was totally smoked for another week. It, It kicked my ass. I was not recovered. And probably realistically, I didn't wait long enough to begin the training in the first place. That's probably why my system wasn't quite bouncing back. And I was a young father and probably had this, that, whatever going on. So I had real life to negotiate. So I sincerely hope that these practical bits can help you navigate this tricky waters when you do get sick and you're trying to protect fitness. Final point, when you're making a decision to ride, if you make a decision out of a place of fear, that is If you're afraid that you're going to lose all your fitness and you're going to suck in your race in June because you took five days off in January, or you do it out of a sense of necessity. That is, you feel like you need to train because the training is written down in a program and there's a pace or a chronic training load increase, a ramp rate to your training that is on a certain pace. And if you derail that ramp rate, you're not going to make your goals. So we have to tidy all the boxes, dot the I's, cross the T's, and make our spreadsheet neat. And you're being a little like a Labrador chasing a ball or OCD. If you make the decision from either of these places, either fear or OCD places, it will not be the right decision. In fact, here's a principle I will offer you. Anytime you make a life decision about anything, and it comes from a place of fear, the only exception being is if your life is in, you are in mortal danger or someone else is around you in mortal danger. That's the exception. Any other time you make a decision out of fear, it's not the right decision. How can this be? You might be thinking, what does he mean? The best decisions, the best path of action, the best course we take in our lives comes from a place of centered, grounded authority, agency over our universe. This is how we make good decisions. We quiet the mind. We let emotions settle. We center. And then we ask honest questions and have an honest reflection this is how we make good decisions this can be about anything from buying a car to what college to attend to whether or not to buy a house so i hope that's helpful i'm gonna go eat some soup now and then probably go to bed thank you for listening i appreciate your patience with my process and i appreciate the fact that my audience digs my message. I'm very grateful for that. Stay tuned for more exciting podcasts. I've got all kinds of guests lined up in my little mind movies and I will forge ahead with the distribution of all the things I've learned and all the things I have yet to learn, humbly recognizing that I have strong opinions that are loosely held and that knowledge is always horizontal. Let me stand on this rock and tell you about how much I know. And the only thing I'm going to say is, I don't know shit but I'm still learning. Thanks for listening. Pedal consciously. Hey there space monkeys. I recorded this podcast in the evening and woke up the next day and realized I'd forgotten a couple of bits and pieces. So two addendums for today's episode. One is I meant to unpack a little more about strengthening the immune system and doing so using exposure to heat and cold. And I'm pretty sure most of my audience will know who Wim Hof is, but we've got to bring him up as an example. Wim Hof is a crazy Dutch guy who has done ridiculous things like running a marathon, I believe, in the North Pole with no shoes and no shirt. He's hiked Everest with no shirt on. He also intentionally injected endotoxins into his body to prove to a group of scientists that he could control his immune system. Something which was previously thought to be total bullshit and hearsay. And they did all kinds of tests on him, monitored various physiological monitors, hormones, blood work, etc. Heart rate, breathing rate, some other variables. And sure enough, they found that he actually can consciously control his immune response to an endotoxin injection. Which, I don't even know what that really means, but it sounds gnarly. Then they recreated the experiment with a group of 12 men that he trained in his method. And they found that they could all do the same thing. So that's pretty amazing information. I'll put a YouTube video link in the show notes if you're interested. But this is quite easy to find. Just go on on the tube of the U and search Wemhoff endotoxin and you'll find it in less than a second thanks to the marvelous power of the internet and this really gives me pause to think about my own health journey and where i'm at i do a lot of meditation Qi gong tai chi breath work all these hippie things alternative modalities of existence and yet i can still be subject to a simple chest cold when i go ride my bike and i'm not quite dressed warmly enough So it suggests to me that I've got some growth in my own journey in terms of protecting and regulating my own health for whatever those thoughts are worth. I do think Wim's pretty inspirational. I also think he's crazy. And there are people who think he's incorrect about his physiological understandings. However, his results, I would argue, are indisputable. Uh, The guy's a mutant and he can do insane stuff. And that's pretty inspirational. If you want a more down-to-earth look at some similar ideas, there's a documentary series that stars none other than Chris Hemsworth, who is, of course, Thor. And actually, I'm forgetting the name of it, so I'm going to search it right now. Pardon my typing. Limitless, it's called. And it's got a Peter Atia chunk in it. It's got several chapters. The idea is to explore how to become harder to kill. And they put Chris through all these obnoxiously difficult challenges. And one of them is he has to swim, I don't know, some distance in some insanely cold ocean in some remote part of Norway, I believe it is. And he goes and does this and they talk about how he could actually die. And he shares his experience of swimming in this extremely cold water. It was pretty interesting. He also did an extended fast with Peter Atia as a guide since he's a doctor. That was also interesting. I, for me, the jury's out on whether this stuff is something that people should take into their own lives. I've played with fasting in my own universe. And as I talked about when I'm sick and I'm depleted, I've found consistently that more calories serve me better than less maybe that's just my physiological makeup. Maybe it's through circumstances of my 51 years of life. I don't know. I can't explain that at the moment. I have no mechanism to explain why that would be my seemingly better course of action. But when I try to not eat when I'm low in energy or life force, it seems to really deplete me, whereas other people go the other way. So I don't know which is better or worse either i mean i think ultimately we're trying we're here to try to figure out what works for us that's the message across all all the adventures whether it's choosing a saddle or figuring out which shoes you should ride in or what kind of training works best for you or what kind really wrecks you and destroys you ultimately we're trying to figure out what works for us and I would offer push our boundaries so that we can accept more and handle more, a wider variety of events, stimulus, a wider spectrum of things that can happen to us in our life. And we, we bounce back. We're okay. Right? That's sort of what we're getting at when we try to make ourselves harder to kill. Because ultimately life will throw challenges at you. And the better we are at handling those challenges, well, the less likely we are to die. Or as it was eloquently put recently in a movie I watched, there are a lot of things that are worse than death. I agree with this. So I wanted to share that bit with you. If you don't know who M. Hoff is by some chance, go forth and check him out. It's my recommendation that was a poorly constructed sentence. My recommendation is to go check out Wim Hof if you don't know if you don't happen to know who he is. Verbal edit complete. The other part that I wanted to mention was my secret weapons. I completely forgot this part at the end of the pod. I just sort of glazed over and missed the last bit of my notes here. But when you are feeling sick, in my experience, there are three things that can bring you back from the dead, or perhaps I'll say again, to use the word I don't like anecdotally, I need to find a good synonym for anecdote that's not as negative and bias. Because if we look up the definition of anecdote, let's do this. Thank you for bearing with me while I actually do research while I'm recording. An anecdote is a quick story about something of interest, usually with a singular theme or lesson. This is on Grammarly. Anecdotes are no different than stories told among friends, but when they're used in literature, they can accomplish more than merely passing the time. This is a terrible definition. Well, according to Grammarly, an anecdote is simply a story that is short and self-contained. That's interesting. That's not the definition that I have been Given recently. Okay, so maybe an anecdote is an acceptable word. Here's another definition on Merriam Webster usually a short narrative of interesting, amusing, or biographical incident. I stand corrected. Someone recently had mentioned the definition of anecdote as being more along the lines of a source that is not trustworthy, a source of information that needs validation or lacks validation, rather. And is not trustworthy as though it was slightly slanderous or not necessarily slanderous but maybe nefarious maybe just inaccurate maybe baseless we'll say it that way and that does not appear to be the definition according to the almighty authority of merriam webster what an interesting journey we're on okay so okay one more cambridge yeah here's cambridge this backs it up a short often funny story about especially about something one has done. Okay, great. So here's my anecdotes, my short stories about me getting better when I was sick. Uh, When I had COVID, which I had, I believe twice, although I only tested positive for it once, but I'm pretty damn sure I had it twice. Because the symptoms were identical and unique to these illness experiences. Now, I will acknowledge that it's possible that that is all made up in my mind movies, but it took me a while to figure out in the first round of, we'll say COVID, probably about a weekend, I was, I was still pretty flattened, uh, severe headache, blowing my nose like an absolute maniac, like an insane snot factory, just ridiculous, mind-blowing amounts of snot coming out of my head. It was pretty disgusting and also annoying. And coughing quite a bit, but not coughing up stuff, just coughing and ripping headaches and body aches and just sleeping. Pretty worthless. And maybe, if I recall correctly, it was maybe four or five days in. I had the intuition like, okay, maybe I should try the sauna. This isn't, it just sort of seemed like it was staying there. Things weren't moving. Normally, when I get that sick, it only happens for a day, maybe two at the most in my life and then it starts to move on. A day is about maximum that I'm really, really down normally. This was four or five days. Okay, so I got in the sauna once for I think 10 or 15 minutes just to try it out. And I felt better afterwards, for sure. So that sort of opened the floodgates. I realized that sauna was gonna help me. My hesitation in getting in the sauna initially was that it would add too much stress to my system in a negative way because being in a sauna is a stressor. It's an exposure to heat. The question is whether that stressor elicits, elicits a positive response from your body or a negative response. And of course, some of that is contingent on total, total physiological stress and probably most relevantly in the case of sauna, how effectively you hydrate before, during, and after, right? I think hydration is a whole other topic. Probably could do an entire podcast on hydration at some point. However, I discovered that the sauna helped me and I've used it. Aggressively since then when I've been sick and I for me unquestionably sauna is a secret weapon It helps me turn turn the corner. By the way, last night I did use a form of heat therapy. So that's my next secret weapon Dr. Singa's mustard bath You can find this stuff on Amazon Uh, Just put in Dr. Singa's. Singa's is S-I-N-G-A-H S, and it is a it has mustard seed in it and a blend of essential oils and it's a powder and you add it to your bath and then you run a very hot bath and this is what I used last night and my experience with Dr. Singa is especially I've done this a few times when I've sort of had kind of a nebulous illness I'll say that was not fully sick, but definitely not healthy, somewhere in the 50s or 60s in my own self-assessed 0 to 100 health rating. And it was just sort of lingering a little bit, like for a day or two. Like sick enough to where I didn't really want to ride or felt like riding would be risky because it might flare it up. I think what Dr. Singa does, again, full disclaimer, not a doctor, don't play one well on the internet, and I'm not a virologist, but this is my estimation, is that it basically spikes your fever. And when it does this, that helps you battle whatever you're going to battle, whether that's a virus or a bacteria. Somehow raised internal temperature helps you battle these microorganisms or viral organisms, viral particles. And that's a thing. This is why your body creates a fever. So when you're sick... Until the point where you think you actually might be in mortal danger, you never, ever, ever reduce a fever. This is battling illness one-on-one. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable you are. Like, I should have said this at the beginning of the pod, honestly. But being sick is about being uncomfortable. That's part of acceptance of the fact that you're sick. Your body is making you uncomfortable on purpose to force you to rest. So... Do not take things that dull your symptoms, things like fever reducers, things like pain medications, pain reducers, right? Tylenol and aspirin and things like this, unless you are, of course, in real danger of dying or brain damage. Obviously, there's a point where your fever gets, your body can take you out trying to battle this virus, right? That's where you're in the box. But this is a fever, I think, of over 103 maybe. Again, not a doctor, so don't quote me on that number. If you get to that point, you need to have some medical intervention. But that's quite rare in my understanding. So your body doesn't produce a fever in response to an organism because it's stressed, it, re- it produces a fever. This is a different way to look at it. And probably doctors are rolling their eyes at me right now or getting pissed off or pushing stop. That's okay. Your body produces a fever to help it. Pro- uh, what it's doing is changing the environmental conditions in your system to make it less favorable for the survival of the bacteria or less, capable, less likely for a virus to propagate, which is what it does, it replicates. So it's by design you don't want to screw up that mechanism this is the same different and yet forward-thinking logic of not icing an acute injury because the body becomes inflamed and produces swelling and redness and inflammatory chemicals all around that site to begin the healing process and when you ice you retard that physical healing process this is taking steps backwards you're fighting against your own your own body this be the same thing as taking a fever reducer. Also, of course, there's a real risk that when you feel like absolute crap and then you jack yourself up on Sudafed or whatever garbage medication you bought at Walgreens, and then you feel kind of okay, what are you going to do? You're going to go right out and either go back to work or go do a bunch of stuff or go ride your bike. And so you, what you've done is your body has broken down. It feels wounded or injured. It tells you that it is wounded or injured by making you feel like crap. That's what is happening. It's a communication pathway. And you don't like these sensations because they're uncomfortable. So you turn them down by pasting them over with medications or analgesics, effectively. And then you, quote, feel normal, unquote end quote, and then you run out and do stuff. Well, you're already depleted and broken. Did you allow yourself time to heal and regain health? Did you allow yourself time to regain vital life force? This takes time. It takes rest. It takes good food. It takes healthy breathing. You're not gonna just take it. You're not gonna get it in a pill or a nasal spray. So please, Get that through your beautiful thick skull. Dr. Singh's mustard bath. You wanna run that quite hot, about as hot as you can tolerate it. You wanna have water nearby and probably put a few pinches of sea salt in that water is my recommendation. Uh, How much? Enough to where you can tell the water has been salted but not to where it tastes salty. That's the perfect amount. You wanna make sure you've got at least 12 ounces of water, but probably more to consume before, during and after the bath so you don't run low. Also, when you get out of the bath, you wanna be really careful because you're in a really hot bath and you can have quite easily be a bit faint or a bit lightheaded. So move slow when you get out of the bath and plan to head right to bed after you do Dr. Singhas. Usually that stuff makes you wanna just pass out. And my experience, my anecdote has been that I sweat like crazy that night, huge night sweats. You're going to bed really warm and you're ramping up the temperature. That's kind of the point. And you wake up feeling better. And I would say today I feel better than I did yesterday by a good margin. Uh, Yesterday I was vacillating between 38 and 48, maybe low 50s at, at times in my internal assessment of vital life energy. Today I'm in the 50s to 60s, I would say. Maybe even low 70s. Right now at this moment, 58. So it's pretty good, I'll take it. Definitely a few points of improvement. That's what we're looking for, trending up. But I'm not gonna ride my bike today. First of all, it's snowing. And I do not ride indoors anymore. Uh, You will not find me on Swift probably ever. Uh, There was a time when I rode rollers, but not feeling it right now. So I'm going to do a sauna and do some house projects, catch up on some work, have a relaxing day. That's the plan. Sit in front of the fire with a book with a cat in my lap, most likely. The third secret weapon I have for when you feel ill is raindrop therapy. Now, a few disclaimers about raindrop. Raindrop is a system of it's a method where we apply essential oils to your back. You would need someone to do this normally, although my wife has figured out how to do it to herself curiously. And you would rub the oils in order on your back. And then if you go with the full protocol, you put a wet, hot towel on your back afterwards. And this helps drive the oils through your skin, into your spine, into your lungs, etc. And then you go to bed. And this can be quite... This can be quite an intense experience because you've got oils like thyme and oregano essential oils on your back with a hot towel so the sensations can be quite intense now the first thing to disclaim about raindrop therapy is it is i believe there are nine essential oils you use some of these oils are extremely potent like no joke uh our oil of oregano for example if you even get one drop of that on your eye you will scorch your eyeball tissue you can burn your skin with oil of oregano essential oils. So you need to be cautious about how you use them and you wanna do it with a carrier oil. So first you put a carrier oil down, any good raindrop therapy will ex, uh, will explain this. Uh, the carrier oil can normally, could be like olive oil or coconut oil. It just dilutes the oils a little bit and protects the skin a touch from the oils, but still allows them to penetrate. So you, you can, make the search engines and look up raindrop therapy, one possible solution would be from, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it now, sorry. Bear with me, more research online while I do the podcast. Raindrop, I gotta look this up. Oh, it's uh, Young Living Essential Oils, which is sort of the multi-level marketing of essential oils in terms of a company and I think they well I won't comment on the quality of their products there's been a bit of controversy I think they've also made some corrections I just did comment sorry I'm talking in circles the reason I bring this up is because uh, Ashley whom I did the podcast with a few weeks ago on back to basics commented that she wasn't necessarily having great faith about essential oil products from Young Living, I'll be forthright and tell you that I I think they're pretty solid. I think they've had some challenges in the past and they've corrected their course. That's based on my current level of knowledge. Use at your own discretion. Uh, You could also get essential oils from any other company. If you want the absolute highest quality oils on the market, in my opinion, go to Dr. Nick's Essential Oil Wizardry. I don't No, if he has a raindrop kit there, I don't think he does specifically, but you can order all the the oils that you would want for a raindrop kit from Dr. Nick. That stuff I 100% vouch behind. His products are excellent. That guy's the real deal. If you want to go with a slightly easier solution, a little more box set, you can probably buy a raindrop kit from Young Living. And I think that'll do you a lot of good. So again, you want to use a carrier oil. You don't have to use hot towels, although it is probably a little more effective. And if you're really sick and you're having a lot of lung challenges, I think this can be a really good solution. Just again, use caution with some of the oils. Don't get oregano on your hands and then wipe your eyes or your genitals or any other sensitive area. It will annihilate you. Uh, Oregano oil is the real deal and some of those other oils are quite potent. So that said, they are powerful antibacterials, antivirals, antifungals. So they're, they're powerful tools we can use if we use them in the right way. You just have to do it in the, in the right bit. These are secret weapon nuclear bombs that I recommend for you if you are feeling sick and you're having trouble getting out of your own way or you've got an ongoing illness that just seems to linger, then we got to come back to our basics, right? Clean water, proper breathing pattern, exposure to sunlight, especially morning sun with as much skin as you can get. Grounding, touch the earth with your naked feet, far infrared sauna, an awesome choice. Dr. Singa's is like a secret weapon for evening, bounce back from illness feeling, and raindrops, same kind of deal. They're both essential oil-based. Those are some of the things I can offer. Also, of course, all the, the things you already know. Don't eat a ton of processed packaged foods. Don't eat a ton of sugar. Stop drinking alcohol. I don't think I mentioned that earlier, I did mention sugar and coffee but alcohol obviously when you're sick this is not the time to drink alcohol occasionally get people to think oh I've got a really bad chest cold I'll just nuke myself with vodka and it'll kill the the bacteria eh, I think this is wishful thinking man I I think you're adding stress on top of stress on top of stress I do not recommend this tactic That's what I got I hope those addendums were useful for you thank you again for listening pedal consciously gratitude epilogue i want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment the purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull some of them through my own research and reading some of them i've been taught through mentors and colleagues other riders other racers A lot of it, a massive amount of it, was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart, and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point and that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held that is to say that if i learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding then my old belief systems will be abandoned and i will now operate under that newfound knowledge so i'm not here to tell people all the things that i know I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people, and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth their intent and their coherence that's really the end goal so I'm grateful for your listening my intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way I don't care about that stuff that said if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know please share it with them that helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.